Bible reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and is found on page 1227 on some of the Pew Bibles. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man is to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, good evening, friends. Uh, we are going to look at this very important topic, and it's a timely topic. I've been asked, um, did I pick these topics just for this time because of what's happening? But I actually planned this series late last year, early this year, so in God's providence, it's a fitting time to think about these things. Uh, but as we think, uh, I do encourage all of us to be deep thinkers of marriage, not just taking what we hear from the media and just thinking on surface level, but actually be deep thinkers. But more than deep thinkers, we want to be people who have thoughts after God's own thoughts. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about marriage, you will give us thoughts after your, your own thoughts and hearts after your own heart. As we think about marriage and how we uh, must honour it, so we pray for much clarity in this confused world today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, marriage, once upon a time... In fact, not too long ago, it was quite simple, unambiguous and clear. It wasn't really that long ago, in fact, that marriage was simply between one man and one woman. Not confusing, quite simple. It's, in fact, what the Disney movies are made of. Now, just reflect on it. Cinderella, uh, Little Mermaid, uh, Aladdin, Shrek, up, marriage, one man, one woman. But of course, that's no longer the case. It's not so simple, not so unambiguous, and not so clear anymore. In fact, what has happened was something that's been happening for quite a few decades, in fact. Rising in prominence during the last century, not this century, last century, was the notion that marriage itself should be scrapped. It should be rejected completely. It's patriarchal, it's institutional, should be gone with completely. Um, and so you have people with this type of view. Uh, this lady, uh, she said this, marriage is a slavery-like practice and we can't destroy the inequalities, inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. So this was uh, uh, a view that came to prominence last century. Or another one, the complete destruction of traditional marriage and the nuclear family is the revolutionary or utopian goal of feminism. So 
Now, this view came up last century. They wanted to get rid of marriage altogether. Now, of course, it's not just women who have rejected this, or some women anyway, who have rejected marriage. Men, too, have rejected the idea of marriage and, and think it's not a very good idea. And so you come across comments like these. Now, these comments are tongue-in-cheek. All men are born free, but some of them get married. Heard of this before? Or this one. I never knew what happiness was until I got married. And by then, it was too late. Or this one. When a man holds a woman's hand before marriage, it is love. After marriage, it is self-defense. And so you have people who have been rejecting the idea of marriage. It's a bad idea. Let's scrap it. And so one time, this honored estate of marriage was honored, was treasured, was valued, but it is slowly being eroded by whatever we want to call it today, revolution, utopia, redefinition, whatever it is. And so today and tonight, how are we meant to think about marriage? How are we meant to understand marriage? Is it really meant to be that complicated? Can it be defined and then redefined as humanity progresses? Well, as we think about this very important important topic tonight, I am aware and very sensitively aware that this can be a sensitive topic for many because of whatever experience of marriage you might have or whatever model of marriage you've seen or it might have been from past hurts or something that has happened in the past. So I'm sensitively aware that this might be a difficult topic to think about. But we want to think about it. So where do we begin to understand marriage? Well, to understand marriage is a bit like what we did last week. To understand marriage is really to come to understand humanity. And so to understand that, we need to go back to the reference point. And the reference point is not what I think or what you think. The reference point is not what I feel or what you feel or even what becomes popular opinion. You see, the, the reference point is static. It is a point in history. And so what's that reference point? What is the blueprint of marriage? Well, for that, we need to really go back right to the very beginning, like what we did last week when we thought about gender identity. Go back to the very beginning, to creation itself. That's the reference point. And what we find there is that marriage is not something that humans came up with. It's not our idea. It wasn't our design. It wasn't our invention. Though throughout the course of human history, we can see that this institution of marriage was something that's celebrated in all different cultures, regardless of whether you're Christian or not. It is just instinctively celebrated as a good thing. But it was not designed or invented by humans. And what we also find at the beginning was that marriage was something that God designed. It was God's idea first. He invented marriage and designed it for the good of humanity and has embedded marriage into the moral order of creation. And that's why you have all sorts of cultures celebrating marriage between one man and one woman. Whether they know God or not, they celebrate it because God has embedded it into the moral order of creation. And so that's the blueprint of marriage. It's not just for Christians, you see. Marriage is a creation thing that is good for all people, whether you believe in God or not. And so when it comes to marriage and the blueprint of marriage, we need to consider what God thinks is best for marriage. So what's the blueprint of marriage? Well, firstly, by design. God's design. And what we see is that, firstly, 
there are three things by design. On your outline, you'll see this. Firstly, is the complementary union between one man and one woman. Secondly, by design, it is the exclusive one flesh union that is for life. And thirdly, it is the public union that establishes a new family. So let's consider each of these three. Now, if you think about those, uh, that, that design of marriage, it in fact fits quite well with what our current law says about marriage. Our current law says this. Marriage means a union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. And so what we find in the blueprint of marriage aligns quite well with our current laws anyway. But anyway, firstly, by design and intention, the design and intention of God himself, marriage is the complementary union between one man and one woman. You see, that's why in the garden... Uh, when no suitable helper, in our first reading, no super, suitable helper was found for Adam from amongst the animal kingdom. God brought along the lions, the bears, you can just imagine the donkeys. Adam named them all, but none of them were suitable helpers for him. And so who did God make then? Well, who, who God made was the woman out of his ribs, one of his ribs anyway. Now what does that mean? out of his ribs now there's this little story of little johnny who went to sunday school and in sunday school they were learning about creation and how god created everyone adam and eve and how god created eve out of one of adam's ribs now later that week uh, little johnny got a bit sick and his mother noticed well what's wrong with you little johnny and jo johnny said i have this pain in my side i i think i'm gonna have a wife now, now, that's not what he's telling us. If we have a pain in some might be appendicitis, it's not going to be a wife. But, but what's the point of that? Well, it's to tell us that the woman was made from man. That is, she's made of the same stuff as man, of the one humanity. She's of the same material. She has the same dignity, the same worth, the same value as God's image bearer. She, have, she has the same type same kind equal to him but yet she is different they're complementary they match it's like two pieces of the puzzle they just match perfectly by design god did not make two identical pieces of the puzzle which cannot match but two complementary pieces of the puzzle that matches perfectly by design and notice in our first reading how Adam was just overjoyed when the woman was brought to him. You know, not an animal now, but a woman. And so the first love song here, composed by a man, we see this. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. You see, she's not like the animals. She's like him, but she's opposite. She's a match. She's the other half. They complement each other. And so what we see here is that the very first human beings, we also see the institution of marriage itself. And that sets up the pattern for all humanity after them. Secondly, what we also see is that it's the exclusive one flesh union for life. It's exclusive, which means you can't introduce a third party into a marriage. Marriage is one man, one woman. You can't, you can't have a third person. You can't have another woman or another man. It is exclusive. And it is also a one flesh union. 
That means two puzzles fitting completely, perfectly well together and two people becoming one. That is one sexually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, in all their aspects as people connected together as one flesh. And that's what we see. Verse 24. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. It's a beautiful picture we see here in the blueprint of marriage. It is beautiful. Now notice here that there is the leaving, leaving of the parents and uniting, or the word is cleaving, leaving and cleaving. Now I've mentioned this in the past if you've been here for a few years, but the word to cleave or to cling to is, is a Hebrew word used in other places of the Old Testament of how an incurable disease clings to a person. So just think about that for a moment. It's how an incurable disease clings to a person. You can't get rid of it. In a sense, that's what's meant to happen in marriage. Once you cling to that person, so when we got married, when I cleaved to Yvonne, when I clung to her, I'm like this incurable disease that's stuck on her for life, and she'll die with me, just like a disease. You see, it's, it, it's meant to help us see that we're meant to be stuck together for life. She can't get rid of me if she wants to. And Yvonne, if you, if you know her, you, you probably heard her talk about me in this way. You know, in marriage, there's just no refund in marriage. You can't get rid of me. You know, that helps us feel just a bit more romantic in our marriage when she speaks that way. <laughs> but do you get the deep sense of this oneness in marriage? It's not two identical pieces of the puzzle, but different, complementary, of the same kind, but different and opposite, coming together in this oneness, this one flesh, without shame and without threat. And because marriage is such a strong bond, it is meant to be for life. God's intention was that it was for life. And so in wedding vows that you hear, have you heard one recently? What are the promises they make? I promise to love you, be faithful to you, for as long as you're still good looking. Do we hear that? We don't hear that, but people believe that, don't they? Or for as long as you don't get sick. Or for as long as it's still convenient. Or for as long as you still make me happy. Well, we don't say that, do we? It is for as long as we both shall live. This one flesh union is for life. Is that disease stuck on another person. You can't get rid of it. We're not meant to get rid of it. It's meant to be a, a good form of a disease, right? It's a good thing. So don't think about it that way. And so God's design for marriage is meant to be for life. Exclusive, one flesh union. That is for life. Thirdly, it is also the public union that establishes a new family. This is how you form new families in society. Just think about it. How do you start a family? You get married and then you have children. That's what happens and that was God's intention and design. This is how family units are formed in society, in all cultures, Throughout human history, two unrelated people from different families. And so we're talking here not siblings getting married or even father and daughter getting married. That is a no-go in God's design, though it has been pushed by some. But it is the public union of two unrelated people to form a new family unit. And this new family unit is really the basic building blocks of any human civilization. It's how new families are formed. 
And so in marriage, we see these three things. By design, complementary union between one man and one woman. Pretty clear, pretty simple. It is the exclusive one flesh union that is for life. And thirdly, it is the public union that establishes a new family. That is by God's design, not our invention. But then for what purpose? Well, again here, the purpose for marriage we find from what God tells us, not what we come up with. And this we get also from the creation account. And so they can be summarized as this, the purpose for marriage. It is for each other, it is for sex, it is for children, and it is also for society. And all those four purposes together can be summed up as all in the service of God. And so if you've been to a wedding in this church, or if uh, I was the one who married you, you would have heard me make this clear, these four purposes. So let me outline them to you again. Firstly, marriage was given so that husband and wife might always enjoy each other's companionship, help and support. Now that is not to say that we are not to find companionship, help and support outside of marriage, but marriage establishes such a bond for life that you can't get rid of and can't get out of. Nor is that saying, nor does that mean that marriage was created to serve my needs of companionship. You see, marriage was not designed to fulfill my selfish needs. Rather, do you notice what happened there in the garden? Adam was alone in the garden. The problem was not that he was feeling lonely and so God felt sorry for him. He may or may not have been lonely. He had the fellowship of God. But the problem was that he was alone, alone in doing the task that God has given him to do. And he could not carry out that task alone. He could not fulfill the creation mandate alone. It was too big for him. So the problem was that not that he was lonely, but that he was alone in the task and he could not complete that task alone. And so God created Eve as his companion, as his help, as his support, so that the two together might use their marriage in the service of God. You see, marriage is for the service of God. It's not meant to be inward-looking, but for the service of God. That's the first purpose. The second one, marriage was given for the proper expression of human sexuality. It is the only relationship that can be sexualized. The only one, the only right one, the only moral one. Siblings are not to be sexualized, nor friends, nor acquaintances, nor same-sex couples. It is only marriage that can be sexualized. It is only in the safety and trust of a marriage relationship where there is to be sex in God's good design. And the purpose of sex there is to be like the superglue that keeps the marriage strong. It keeps the marriage together. You see, we're confused by what our world tries to convince us about sex. In a few weeks later, we'll talk more about sex. But our world gets us to think that we as individuals need sex. That is not the Bible's teaching. It is not the individual that needs sex. It is the marriage that needs it. There's a difference there. Do you get that? Not the individual that needs sex. It is the marriage that needs it to keep it strong. And so we, we must not be conformed by what our world teaches us. Third, 
Marriage was given so that family life might continue and that children might be brought up in the love and security of a stable and happy home. See, marriage between one man and one woman and sex between one man and one woman in the comfort and security of marriage is really the only natural way in which children can be brought into this world. You see, Male and female are binary by design, by God's design. Binary for a reason, because of this, for children. The best environment to bring up children, despite what our world tells us. The best environment to bring up children is one in which the child has the love, the care, the support and influence of both father and mother. Now, of course, there are fathers and mothers who do a terrible job. We have them around. And, of course, there are single parents who do a wonderful job. There are many of those around. But those reasons, those examples, do not take away or diminish God's intended design for human flourishing, where there is both mother and father. That is God's design for the family unit. Now, some of you may have heard of this lady, uh, Millie, Millie uh, Fontana, a young lady who was raised by lesbian parents, and so she has two mothers. She, she said in one of her speeches she loves her mothers, or love her mothers and, and the partner deeply, greatly appreciative of the, their love for her and how they raised her up. But then she said this. She said, there was always something missing for me. And I can honestly say that I always wanted to know who my father was. Now, she, she's got two mothers, loves them dearly, but she recognizes something missing in her life. She goes on to say this, I honestly don't believe there is a right way that you can ethically bring a fatherless or motherless child into the world electively. You see, one of the big consequences in this same-sex marriage debate is the rights of children we need to think about that children either born or raised in same-sex families have their natural right to be raised by both mum and dad taken away by design have you realized that by design they will not have a father and mother they might have two fathers might have two mothers but not all of them will be biologically related. Now, Margaret Somerville, a professor of law and bioethics, she said this, same-sex marriage creates a clash between upholding the human rights of children and the claims of homosexual adults. So who should we go for? The claims of adults or the rights of unheard children? You see, what this means is that for there to be children, just think about it, for there to be children amongst same-sex couples, lesbians will need a sperm donor. And males, male couples, what do they need? They need surrogate mothers. Obviously, they can't have their own children. And so let me ask you, where do you think or who do you think will be most affected by surrogacy? It's already happening in the world. Who will be most affected by surrogacy? Because two blokes cannot have children naturally. They want children. Where will they go? 
Well, they will go where the women's wombs are cheapest. And it is the poorest in the world. You see, in India, I, I discovered this, surrogate motherhood has become a $2.3 billion industry. Wombs for hire for nine months. I mean, there are hospitals where women are kept in the, in the hospital for a whole nine months while they're carrying someone else's child. Some places they're well cared for, some places they're exploited, but it costs about 3000 to 4500 and many of these women, because they're poor, they'll do it three or four times. Last year there were 1,000 surrogacies in India for British clients. You see, children end up becoming, it's a crude way of putting it, but children end up being a commodity. It doesn't come from natural love between one man and one woman in marriage. They become like a commodity. It's a sad reality of what has happened when we depart from God's design. Now, another guy, an editor of an uh, uh, important newsletter, he said this, Michael Cook. Supporters of same-sex marriage must recognize they face a serious moral dilemma. Cheap wombs might bring gay men the happiness of being the father of a child of their own, but the cost of that happiness is often borne by poor and uneducated women. You see, this is the flow-on effect. It's all connected here. And it is a sad reality of what is happening. But you see, in God's good design, one of the purposes of marriage is children through this wonderful, mysterious design of sex between the binary genders. And finally, marriage was given so that human society might be healthy and have a firm foundation. See, marriage draws clear boundaries around what relationships can be sexualized. It is quite clear, and it safeguards that from sexual chaos. I mean, to cut across that border that God has put in place is to break down families and society. Just think about it. Imagine a society where husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends, they just sleep around with each other and children are born with all sorts of people. I mean, what does that do to the family unit? It's chaos. What does that do to society? It is chaotic. And so marriage is good for society because it keeps clear boundaries. This is the family unit. This is the marriage. This is the only relationship that can be sexualized. And there is a good purpose in that. You see, marriage establishes new family units with clear boundaries, and that is good for society. And so these four purposes together for, for each other, for sex, for children, for society, can all really be summed up as all in the service of God. That was God's intention. And so a strong marriage, and I've made this clear in, in our marriage counselling classes that, that we do, it's never to be inward-looking, where the couple gaze into their eyes for life. That's not what marriage as God has intended. Marriage is meant to be together, walking side by side, fulfilling the purposes for which God has given them in the service of God. Marriage is not meant to be inward-focused, inward-gazing, but outwards, towards God and forward, in the service of God. So we've looked at the beginning of marriage, by, in its purpose, by design and its purpose. But what is the heart of marriage? We hear this language thrown around. Is it just about love then? 
as long as you love someone, you can get married. As long as two consenting adults, they, they can get married. That's what it comes down to. Well, that's what our romantic movies would make us believe, but not according to God's original design. You see, the heart of marriage, in fact, cuts with the grain of the universe. The heart of marriage is the heart of the universe, and that is faithfulness. It is the word faithfulness, because that is what is at the heart of God. It is what God is like. And that's why at weddings, we don't hear the couple declare love for each other. We don't hear them declare, I love you. They do say that, but what they are declaring is a declaration of faithfulness. Not, I love you, I declare that now, but I promise to love you. I promise to love you, to cherish you, to comfort you, to honor and to support you. It is a declaration of faithfulness from this day onwards. My eyes will only be on you. I'll be faithful to you alone. You see, it's not just when it's convenient. It's not a promise uh, in, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow and in sickness and in health, only when I feel like it. It is a promise for all those things, for life, forsaking all others for life. It's a promise I will stick with you through thick and thin, no matter what. And what can separate us? Only death. You see, at the heart of marriage is, in a sense, not this love language which has really become so wishy-washy. It's been hijacked and it can really mean anything. It is faithfulness, or as the Bible describes it sometimes, as faithful love or steadfast love. It is a promise. And so marriage has nothing to do with falling in and out of love. That is silly Hollywood stuff. Marriage has something to do with making a declaration of promising I will be with you for life. You see, marriage is not something you grow into. People grow into marriage by living together before they get married, but that's not God's design. Marriage is something you enter into when you make that promise on that day. There is a difference. You see, it's about keeping the promise that you make on the wedding day for life. And that is what God is like. You see, it's at the heart of the universe because it is at the heart of God. I mean, consider this passage where God declares what he is like. The Lord, the Lord, the God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, marriage at its core reflects what God is like at his core. It is about being faithful. And that is why divorce is a horrible thing. It's always a horrible thing. Now, there may be good reasons sometimes for divorce, though permitted in the Bible in some circumstances, never really encouraged by the Bible. You see, God did not design marriage so that you can get out of it by divorce. It goes against God's original design. There was this... American comedian one time, Jack Benny, he, he said this uh, from a different generation to us, so we have to try to understand why this is funny. But they took divorce a lot more seriously than we do today. And he said this, My wife Mary and I have been married for 47 years, and not once have we had an argument serious enough to consider divorce. Murder, yes, but divorce, never. 
See, they took divorce very seriously because it goes against the grain of the universe. It is a breaking of my promise. I'm not keeping my word. You see, at the heart of marriage is really the heart of God. Faithfulness. And we see this in the Old Testament. God pursued in the book of Hosea. God pursued the Israelites, though they prostituted themselves to idols. God remained faithful to them. That is the faithful God. And even in Christ, God pursued us, sinners and rebels. He remains faithful to his promise. And that's, that's why no one should ever enter into marriage lightly. It requires and it demands faithfulness, not just for this time when you feel like it, but it's faithfulness for life. That is the heart of marriage. So we've looked at the beginning of marriage, the heart of marriage. What about the pattern of marriage? What, what about how a husband and wife are meant to relate to one another? How are they to relate? Well, you see, even here, we're not left to work this out on our own. God did not leave us. Here's a good idea of marriage. You can have babies and all this stuff. Now, you just work out how you're to be married. Well, no. In the Bible, we're given clarity on the pattern of marriage. And it is grounded in creation, but it is also seen ultimately in the relationship between Christ and the church, the people of God. That is described as a marriage in the Bible. Christ, Jesus Christ, and his church. In fact, the Bible goes as far as to say this, that that relationship between Christ and his church is the greater marriage. That's the ultimate reality that all our human marriages point to and will look forward to. You see, it is that marriage between Christ and his church that is the pattern for how a husband and wife are to relate to one another. I mean, when I first heard of that and learnt of that when I was a younger Christian man, it, it blew my mind. It meant that my marriage should be a reflection of something far greater and deeper and lasting. It blew my mind. And so for this, we need to look at the second Bible reading, Ephesians 5. What is the role and responsibility of husbands? Well, it is to be like Jesus Christ in his humble, sacrificial love. Husbands are all commanded, love your wife sacrificially, commanded by God to do that. You know, not feel the love, but to give love sacrificially as the head of the family. And so we see this in Ephesians 5, our second reading. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so what this means is that husbands are meant to love their wives with their lives. You see, there's no permission here for husbands to use their headship to make demands, to make commands, to even abuse. That is wrong. But they are to use their headship to love sacrificially, always considering the interests of their wife before their own, even laying down their life for their wife. That is the command by God for husbands. Now, I don't actually think it's too difficult to lay down my life for Yvonne. I will take the bullet for her any day. No problem. You want to shoot a gun? Just make sure you aim at me first before you get her. I'll, I'll be in between the bullet and her. I'll take on a, a, a bulldog. 
I'll take on a bear for her. I'll take on a tiger, a lion. I'm that man. He said, I'll do anything for my wife. And I reckon that's pretty easy to, to, to lay down my life for my wife. But what's commanded here is a sacrificial love that is daily. Not just when it comes to it, you die for her, but it's a daily dying for her, for her interest, for her good. And that is far, far more challenging. It is, in fact, quite difficult. I mean, the things I have to do to show my love for Yvonne, unbelievable. They're difficult stuff. I mean, a few weeks ago, we celebrated our 14th anniversary. You know what I had to do to show my love? 14 surprises. I just have to pluck them out of the air somewhere. Drove me nuts that week. But that is me trying as hard as I can. I probably didn't do a very good job, but trying as hard as I can to lay down my life daily out of interest for my wife. But, but seriously, it's the small decisions that husbands need to make. Every small decision that needs to seek the interest of the wife, the wife first, waking up, being the one to check the doors, being the one to wake up to check on the kids, being the one who changes the nappies so that the wife can rest a bit. After a long day's work, both tired. Who wants to do any cooking? Who wants to do any cleaning? It is the husband who should take the initiative. That is loving daily, sacrificially, for the good of the wife. And even after some disagreement or marriages, there will be conflict and fights. And each marriage will deal differently. But it is really, if it's a conflict that goes on and on and on, it's not resolved, who's, who's charges it to take initiative? I think it's the blokes. Take charge, sacrificially love the wife by reconciling first. So the husband's role, quite clear. And it comes from Christ and the church, commanded to love their wives sacrificially. Now, what about the wives? Well, wives are instead called to willingly, joyfully, voluntarily submit and to respect their husband. That's not any man and every man, but only their husband. Now, often this is grossly misunderstood. The word submit in our time, it's like a dirty word. But in the Bible, it's a beautiful word. Submit does not mean being a doormat. Submit does not mean my opinions doesn't matter. Submit does not mean I am not important. But here in the Bible, what it means is the willing, joyful, voluntary submission to the man God has placed, God has given to lead me with his life. I mean, this is extraordinarily countercultural, but it is beautiful when you understand it. And it's pattern of Christ and the church. So have a look at Ephesians 5 again. Wives, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. You see, in God's pattern for marriage, it is submission to being loved. Submission to one who loves you dearly. It, it does not devalue the wife in any way. does not make her less important in any way. I mean, if you think about it, we all submit every day to different, different authorities. I submit to the police, even a younger cop, I'll submit because he is in that authority does not make any less important or of less value than him. Across the road, when I pick up our kids, I'm driving my big car, um, and I'm, I, want, I just want to quickly get our kids, go home so I can do some work. 
but there will be an old lady always there standing with the the stop sign the lollipop lady and i will submit i won't run her over even though i want to get home quickly i will submit and it is a good thing for order in society god has given us this for our good and so submission is good in the context that's the biblical understanding of submission and so how does this look well when i say to yvonne i'll take the rubbish out her job is not to fight me over taking the rubbish out her job is really submit to my love let me do it i'll do the dirty job here love i don't call it love actually i call her wife <laughs> But of course, submission, we must understand that in this broken world, it is not easy and it's not always easy because submission is not conditional. I'll only submit if he loves me. And the love of the husband is not conditional. I only love if she submits to me. It is not conditional. And so this was something we had to learn even in our own marriage. We've been married for 14 years and we continue to learn this, making sure that we are clear with our roles that matches the pattern that God has invented and designed. And so how does this look then? Well, I'm, I'm not a great husband. I try to be a good husband. I don't always do the right thing. I do foolish things. But how Yvonne shows respect and submission is that she won't talk about me and undermine me in front of other people. She won't talk to her girlfriends about how terrible I am because she is showing respect to her husband. She won't speak disrespectfully about me even before the kids. This is how God has designed the husband and wife to relate. See, it's a beautiful biblical pattern for marriage. Two pieces of the puzzle, not just matching biologically, it matches biologically, but matching psychologically, even in our roles and responsibilities. It is countercultural, but it is biblical and it is for our good. That's the pattern of marriage. Christ and his church and what we try to do in our marriage is try to reflect that. Now, finally, we've looked at the beginning of marriage, the heart of marriage, the pattern of marriage, now the future of marriage. What will marriage look like in the future? Well, what we look at here, what we find here in the last book of the Bible is that human marriages will end and it will be superseded by the re reality to which it points. And in the book of Revelation, that is painted like a wedding banquet between Christ and his people. And so in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made himself ready. You see, in eternity, there won't be human marriages, but there will be this eternal marriage between Christ, the Lamb of God, and his people. What that is trying to help us understand is that whatever intimacy or, or fellowship or companionship or joy we might experience here on earth in human marriages, it will be far greater, far greater than that in heaven. And it's not just for married people, it's for all who belong to Christ. That is wonderful. Now, it might be hard to understand, and it is hard to understand, but sometimes we find it hard to grasp in our marriage. We've spent so many years together in our marriage, so many years together. And so Yvonne has said to me in the past, how is it possible that in heaven, after spending so much time together, how is it possible in heaven that we won't be married? But, but the answer is that, well, it's because it will be superseded by something far greater than what we have now. And it's something to look forward to. 
for all who belong to Christ, whether married or not. And so what we need to understand here about marriage is that understanding marriage here on earth in its proper perspective. It is good here on earth if it fits God's design and purpose, but it is not what life is all about. Life is not about getting married. There is something bigger and better than marriage. Life is not about getting married because the marriages here on earth are really a shadow of the reality to which it points. And so we'll all belong to that wonderful wedding banquet, that wonderful marriage, if we belong to Christ. That's the future of marriage. All right, we've considered a lot today, haven't we? So we've looked at the beginning of marriage, the heart of marriage, the pattern of marriage, the future of marriage. And hopefully there is clarity here for why we who are Christians believe what we believe and say what we say. But given our current climate, I really want to just end briefly on these two points. Can marriage be redefined? Should it be redefined? Well, marriage as God has designed it and purposed it must never be redefined, but it must be defended. It must be defended. But I must remind us all, however we talk about this, however we engage on this topic, we must remember to engage with love, with compassion, with grace, with respect, because we are sinners alike. Those who want to be married, same-sex couples who want to get married, they are pushing for that because they feel like this is what they really want. But we must understand that for us to say no to that, we're not saying we hate them, we still love them, but we're just saying we don't think that is best for them. So we must not give in to the language that is thrown around that if we, we, if we don't defend the traditional stance that we're somehow a bigot, we must resist that. We are saying this, we are defending marriage as God has designed it because that is what's best, not just for them, but for human flourishing and for the generations to come. And so God's design must be defended. And so in my voting, I will say no. But my final point is this. We should defend it, but we defend it best, not really by voting no. We must do that, I think. But we defend it best by honouring marriage. We defend it best by honouring marriage. And the way we honour marriage, even if the law changes, we honour marriage by making sure that the marriages in the Christian community will always uphold God's design and purpose. That is how we defend marriage, by making sure that our marriages are good if we are married. Very good. Matches completely with God's design and purpose. That is how we defend it best. And when the world looks upon us and sees that is good, hopefully they'll see a glimpse of the gospel. You see, we want to have good marriages and that would defend it best. That's how we honour it. Because we want to be not just fighting against same-sex marriage, but also adultery, promiscuity in marriage, unfaithfulness, premarital sex, domestic violence, abuse. They all break down marriage and we want to be against all of those things. Not just same-sex marriage, but all of those things. So finally, I want to say we defend marriage best by honouring marriage in our lives if we are married. If we are single, there is a place for that too, to honour marriage, those who are married. But we'll talk more about singleness in a few more weeks. But you see what would happen there? 
as this world, as I see it, become more and a more darker place, a darker and darker place, it is the Christian marriage that will shine more brightly if we honour God's design and purpose. And so people hopefully then will see a glimpse of the wonderful gospel of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly